0: Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be a part of this holy convocation to spend time reflecting on you and your word. Father in heaven, you know that my feet are made of clay, and we ask that the Holy Spirit would apply specifically the truths necessary to each and every heart this morning. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayers, for we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Today, we begin a five part series of messages that we've entitled The Sanctuary, Salvation, and Our Savior. This is actually a 13 part series that I've done, but I've redacted it uh, for the time frames that we have. And for the next five mornings, including today, we'll be taking a journey through the sanctuary and examining the relevancy of the sanctuary to the plan of salvation and our personal lives. And I want to begin by looking at Psalm 27, verse 4. David says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. If you had one request that you could make of God… One thing you could ask of him, what would you ask him for? New car, new house, healing, restoration. And here David says, look, if I had one request that I could make of God, one supplication, one thing that I could say, Lord, I want this entity, he said, I would ask to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David says, I want to live in your house, not just for a day, not just for a year, but for the rest of my life. Now, I can think of individuals that I would not even want to spend one night in their home. You know what I'm talking about? It's not just because of the structure of their home, but it's because of the person that resides in the home. And here David says, I want to live in your house all the days of my life. And he goes and says, I want to do something there. And the first thing that he wants to do in God's house is to behold the beauty of God. God is beautiful, amen? He is aesthetically beautiful, and it emanates from an internal beauty of character. God is beautiful, so God's house is a house of beauty. And David says, the first thing I want to do is behold the beauty of God. The other thing that David says he wants to do in God's house is to inquire in his temple. This word inquiry here implies a seeking after truth, an intellectual discourse. So David says, I want to live in your house. I want to behold the beauty of God, and I also want to seek after truth. So, God's house is a place of beauty and truth. What does God's house look like? We're given some reference points for God's house. Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple. So here we have a scene in the book of Revelation, the temple of God, God's house. A picture of the Ark of the Covenant is seen in God's house, in the temple. And for those that don't believe in the sanctuary in heaven, here is a clear passage that says the temple of God was opened in heaven. And here's an article of furniture that is witnessed in God's house. The Ark of the Covenant, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, indicates another article of furniture that is seen in God's house. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. So here's another article of furniture in God's house. It is the lamps of fire, the menorah, that is burning in God's house, in His temple. Here's an artist's depiction of that. And then we have another article of furniture described in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3. He was given much incense that He should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the altar, which was before the throne. So here in God's house, we have three articles of furniture that are described in the book of Revelation. You have the Ark of the Covenant, you have the menorah, and you have the altar of incense as well. In Exodus chapter 25 verse 8, the Bible says that Moses was instructed to give a miniature replica of God's house. Here it is in Exodus chapter 25 verse 8. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. There are some individuals that believe that the sanctuary was invented at Mount Sinai when God gave the blueprint to Moses. Moses came down from Mount Sinai and came down with two things. One of them was the Ten Commandments etched in stone. The other thing that he came down with in his mind was the model of the sanctuary in exact dimensions. And God said to Moses that this is a replica of the original. This was to be according to the pattern of God's house in heaven. So, when we look at the earthly tabernacle, it is in miniature scale of God's house, God's temple, that preexisted Sinai and was God's throne from the eternal ages. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, We have the clearest reference that indicates that after Jesus went to heaven, he assumed the role from being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and took on a new role as high priest. Here it is in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Now, the main point of the things that we are saying is this We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. couple observations. This is a direct quote to Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9, and here Paul establishes that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he went into the real sanctuary that the Mosaic sanctuary was a replica of, and he assumed the role as high priest. This is a foundational passage for Seventh-day Adventists, and it seems like in every generation, the sanctuary motif, the sanctuary framework comes under question. 1979, 1980, we had Desmond Ford who said that the sanctuary idea, the heavenly sanctuary was an illusion. He called it heavenly geography, that the sanctuary in heaven did not exist. And after he left the church, one third of the Adventist ministers in Australia walked out of the church with him. So you can see that this idea of the sanctuary is central to Adventist theology and if we do not have a solid foundation for the understanding of specifically the heavenly sanctuary friends we are in the wrong church we have no reason to exist so i hope that through this journey that we can find many hooks on which to hang our faith because this is a biblical concept of the heavenly sanctuary and it is very explicit especially in the book of hebrews And here in Hebrews chapter eight, verses one through five, the Bible says there is a sanctuary in heaven. Post-cross, Jesus went there as a high priest to minister on our behalf. Now, on the screen, I have a bird's eye view of the Mosaic sanctuary. And this is a model of what Moses was given on Mount Sinai. And here's the bird's eye view. There's three different compartments to the sanctuary. You have the courtyard, then you have the holy place, and you have the most holy place. The courtyard has two articles of furniture, the altar burnt offering and the laver. The holy place has three articles of furniture, the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. And then the holy place has the Ark of the Covenant. And notice that we just read in the book of Revelation that John saw the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. He also saw the lampstand and the altar of incense. So this is a replica of the original in heaven. Now the question arises, did the sanctuary pre-exist Sinai? Was the sanctuary there or was it invented when God gave it to Moses and we have some implications in scripture that seem to indicate that the sanctuary did pre-exist Sinai and here's the first one in Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 14 you were the anointed cherub who covers i established you you were on the holy mountain of god this is in reference to lucifer and notice that the bible says that you were the cherub who covers Lucifer was, of all the created beings, given the privilege of knowing God more than anyone else. He stood in the very Shekinah glory of God, and you can see that his position was to cover the Shekinah glory at the throne room of God, and this replica of the throne room is there in the sanctuary at the Ark of the Covenant. There are two cherubims, two cherubs that cover the Shekinah glory, and Lucifer was one of those cherubs. And notice this reference is talking about eternity past, prior to Sinai. The throne room of God had this replica that was replicated in the ark of the covenant which seems to give an indication that the sanctuary pre-existed Sinai the throne room of God with the cherubim that were present there. In Isaiah chapter 14 verse 13 the other reference to Lucifer indicates that Lucifer's goal was to sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. This word assembly here indicates that it was a place where God's creation and the angels would gather together, and scholars believe that the sanctuary, God's house prior to sin, was a place of doxology. It was a place of praise. It was a place that the eternal, illimitable God would sit on His throne, and the created beings of the universe would come together to worship and praise God. Also, the Bible seems to indicate that God's house, His throne, was the place that was the command center of the universe. It was the place where God resided, as well as carried out His operational center for the sovereign uh, sovereignty of, of, his, of His throne. And one theologian said that the sanctuary prior to sin was a place of doxology as well as the command center of the universe. It was the place where God resided, much like the White House is today. The White House is the residence of the President of the United States, but it's also the command center the President of the United States as well. So prior to sin, the sanctuary was the command center of the universe as well as the place of doxology. And here in Isaiah chapter 14 verse 13, he says, I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, and here in Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 13, the Bible says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes, referring to Lucifer. And these instruments were also used in the sanctuary as well. So, the sanctuary was the command center of the universe prior to sin. It was the place of doxology that the heavenly intelligences would come together and worship God. And after sin, the command center of the universe, God's house, took on the additional responsibilities of the plan of salvation. In other words, the plan of salvation is so essential, so central to the work of God, that God did not position it in an office somewhere. He said, I'm going to bring this into my house, into His throne room. So, God's house, His temple, became also the command center for the plan of salvation as well. Going back to Psalm 27, we said that David The cry of his heart was, if I could have one request, one wish, I want to live in God's house all the days of my life, to inquire in His temple, to see His beauty. And the other thing that David said, at the apex of Psalm 27, which is verse 8, this is the other thing that we are to do in God's house, and it's the quotation of what God said to David as he made his request to live in God's house. Notice what he says in Psalm 27, verse 8. He said, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. So, the primary motif, the primary goal of the sanctuary is to do what? is to seek the, the face of God, to seek the face of God. So, the, the idea of the sanctuary, the idea of God's house is that we are to seek. It has a telos. It has a goal. It has an endpoint. It has a place that God wants to bring us, and that is to seek His face, to see the face of God. Now, Adam and Eve before sin in Eden, were they able to have an encounter with God that was very unique, that we're not able to have today? Were they able to have a face-to-face encounter with God? Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like to have a conversation with God face-to-face to face. I read an article that every year there is a lottery, a bidding war, to have lunch with Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the world. He's a billionaire. I couldn't believe it when I read this article. There are individuals that will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for a one-hour lunch with Warren Buffett. There was a couple guys that paid $600,000 apiece to have a one-hour lunch with Warren Buffett. They were asked after the lunch, was it worth it? And they said, I couldn't believe it. They said, absolutely, it was worth every penny. $600,000, half a million dollars to have lunch with Warren Buffett. Can you imagine having lunch with God? What would that conversation be like to be engaging the infinite mind of God? And the Bible tells us that Eden before sin, that every day God would walk in the garden in the cool of the day and have a face-to-face encounter, a conversation with Adam and Eve, And Ellen White tells us in the book of Education, what education can surpass this? The highest education that we can ever receive is communion with the infinite God. And this is the communion, the education that Adam and Eve had every single day in Eden before sin. The implication here is in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 that this was a regular occurrence In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, this took place after the fall, but the implication here is that this took place on a regular occurrence by implication every single day, this face-to-face encounter with God. God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God had a face-to-face communion with Adam and Eve. So, this was a, a regular daily thing that happened. They would talk face-to-face, with God, the God of the universe. And remember the sanctuary motif, the sanctuary idea. David says, I want to live in your house, and God says, seek my face. Now, notice what happens immediately after the fall. After Adam and Eve sin, there is a dramatic relational change in the encounter between humans and God. This face-to-face dynamic is no longer possible, not because God has changed, but because we have changed. The primary issue is sin. Sin has caused this relational dynamic, this face-to-face communion that Adam and Eve experienced prior to the fall became no longer possible. Now, notice the immediate thing that happens in the first encounter that Moses has on Mount Sinai, and it's interesting because in Exodus chapter 33, Moses makes a request of God. You remember what Moses asked God? He says, can I see your what? He says, can I see your face? A bold request that Moses makes of God. Moses says to God, I want to see your face. And, and notice what, what God said to Moses. And Moses was a righteous man. He was a godly man. And in Exodus chapter 33 verse 20, the Bible says that God responded to the request that Moses has made, can I see your face? He says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So here's the problem. God wants to have an encounter with human beings. He wants to have this face-to-face relational communion, but He says, you can't do that because it would destroy you. And you remember that story. He says, look, hide in the cleft of the rock. There's a song, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. It's from Exodus chapter 33. So, Moses goes into this crevasse, this cleft of the rock, and hides there and he says i'm going to cover you with my hand and as i pass by i'm going to remove my hand and you can see my what can you see you can see my back and i can imagine moses goes into the cleft of the rock and he's peeking out the, the radiance the holiness and he just sees the back of god Do you remember where, what was the the physical manifestation after that experience of Moses. He came down from the mountain, and this was just after seeing his back, and the children of Israel said, look, we can't look at your face because it's too bright, and they had to cover the face of Moses. And this is after one glimpse of the back of God. God says the sanctuary motif, the sanctuary ideal, is to bring us back to that face-to-face encounter with God, but something happened because of sin, it's no longer possible, and here we see in Exodus chapter 33 verse 20 that God says, you can't see my face and live, but you can see my back. Another instance where we see the impossibility of beholding the Shekinah glory of God was in 1 Samuel chapter 6 verse 20. When the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive by the Philistines, and they ran into a lot of problems, so they released the Ark of the Covenant, had two oxen or two, two um, female cows that had just given birth, and the, the ox or the, the cows led the, the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And do you remember what happened when they saw the Ark of the Covenant? the people of Beshemish uncovered the ark. Do you remember what happened as soon as they uncovered the ark? People began to die, and in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, you'll notice what the people say as the people are dying from witnessing the Shekinah glory of God. And it's here in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. And the people of Bishemish asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom the Ark of the Covenant will go up from here? Notice what they say Who can stand in the presence of this holy God? It's also echoed in the book of Revelation when the mountains and rocks are falling, Jesus is coming, and they say, Who can stand? In the presence of a holy God. So, there's an issue here. They're not able to witness the Shekinah glory of God because of the holiness of God. Now, the question is, what is the condition for seeing God face to face? What is the criteria for having this conversation with God? And the answer is found In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, what is the condition for seeing God's face? And here it is in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, the criteria for having a conversation with God without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The condition for having a conversation with God face to face is holiness. That is the criteria. Now, how do you feel when you hear this criteria? I feel very unworthy. Um, I actually feel a lot of anxiety because I'm anything but holy. But the criteria for having the Adam and Eve relationship before the fall is holiness. That is the condition. And Exodus chapter 31, verse 13, tells us the message of the sanctuary. He says, I am the Lord who makes you what? I am the Lord who makes you holy. And this is the message of the sanctuary. The message of the sanctuary is God wants to have this face-to-face encounter with us. The issue is our lack of holiness, and God says, I will make you holy." Now let's go back to this diagram of the sanctuary, this bird's-eye view of the Mosaic sanctuary, and you'll see that there is an implied movement that is to take place. Uh, look at the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. Now. In respect to the sanctuary, where were Adam and Eve prior to the fall? They were in the most holy place. They were in that face-to-face communion with God. As a result of sin, where has the entire human race been placed? Outside of the sanctuary. So, remember, the motif of the sanctuary is to seek my what? to seek my face. So, the, the message of the sanctuary, and when, when I first was introduced to the sanctuary, it was so confusing, all these uh, symbols and, and colors and so forth, but God has illustrated the sanctuary in kindergarten, illustrative, almost elementary uh, 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 format, so that even a child can understand this. Adam and Eve were in the most holy place, prior to the fall, after the fall, we were not able to have a face-to-face communion with God anymore, and the message of the sanctuary is the message that I will bring you back. That's the central idea of the sanctuary. He will bring us into the holy place, I mean into the courtyard, into the holy place, and into the most holy place. The message of the sanctuary implies movement from outside of the sanctuary into the courtyard, into the holy place, and into the most holy place. Go to Revelation chapter 22. Actually, I have it here on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 22 is the last book of the Bible, and this is when Eden is restored. The Bible can be summarized as Eden lost, Eden restored, and in Revelation chapter 22 you have the tree of life that is restored, and in Revelation chapter 22 verse 5 the Bible says that there will be a completion of that face-to-face encounter that Adam and Eve experienced prior to the fall. Here it is, last chapter of the Bible when Eden is restored. And notice the nuance of this passage. Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. Then they will see His what? They will see His face. The restoration of Adam and Eve's relationship with God in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. In other words, God has done it. Remember the central motif of the sanctuary, seek my face. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, God will be successful, and He says, they will see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. Now, it's interesting because the high priest would wear on his forehead a gold plate with the words, holiness to the Lord. And remember, what is the criteria for seeing God's face? It is holiness, His righteousness. So, here we see the restoration of man back to the image of God, and with that, the restoration of that face-to-face encounter that Adam and Eve experienced before the fall. So, Eden was lost. Eden will be restored again. They will see His face and His name will be on their forehead. So, the sanctuary motif, the sanctuary idea is that God has a goal. He has an end that He wants to bring us, and in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, we see that God will be successful in bringing us all the way back. Now, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, the Bible says, "'Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men.'" and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. The idea that emerges here is the sanctuary motif. The tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. Remember David's request, I want to live in God's house all the days of my life, and here is a direct quote, a direct reference to the sanctuary idea. In other words, we are going to live in God's house. Now, it's interesting because when you look at the book of Revelation, John says that he looked in the New Jerusalem and he did not see a temple there. Now, there's only one structure in Moses' tabernacle that was a perfect square, and that was the most holy place. The New Jerusalem is a perfect square. In other words, the reason why John did not see a temple in the New Jerusalem is because the New Jerusalem is the temple. And we will live in God's house all the days of our life. God will be successful in bringing us all the way back. I was at a ministerial meeting and uh, was talking with a gentleman colleague pastor, and he told me that he had dated his wife online through one of these Adventist Connect or Adventist dating sites, and he told me the fascinating story of how he, during their entire courtship, had never met her face to face, just online, digitally. And he told me how he had proposed to her online without ever having met, and I just leaned forward with fascination, and he said, you know, David, I proposed to her, and we set the wedding date, and I flew over there, and I got married without ever having met her face to face. And I said, my brother, what were you going to do if when you got off the plane… And you saw that individual face-to-face, and you're going to say, oh, Lord, what have I done? (laughs) And you know what he told me? He told me something fascinating. He said, our relationship, our communication became so intimate, and we had a connection, even though it was through the phone and online, that when we met face-to-face that our relationship picked up right where we had left off, and we are happily married to this day. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to meet Jesus face to face? That's going to happen, by the way. Amen? One day, we're going to be able to see Jesus face to face. Imagine if right now Jesus were to walk into this auditorium, the back there, and just say, hello, I'm, I'm here, I'm Jesus. What would be your initial emotional reaction to Him walking in? Have you ever met somebody that you had seen on television You've watched them. I remember one time I uh, came in contact with a famous person. I was walking into the bathroom. There he was, in the flesh. And it was the most awkward interaction. (laughs) Because I knew about him, but I didn't know him. To make things worse, he didn't know me. Open the bathroom. There he is. And I was like, oh! It's this awkward thing. And I just went, oh. And I just went around him. And and will that be our reaction to seeing Jesus face to face? I pray not. I mean, can you imagine, oh, I know about you, but I don't know you. I mean, worst case scenario, you want to hide from him. Or will it be Jesus? I know you. You know me. And you pick up right where you have left off. Friends, one day we're going to see Jesus face to face, and we have a tremendous opportunity right now to have the most intimate communion with Him so that when He does come in the clouds of glory, you pick up right where you left off. Amen? It's not going to be awkward. It's not going to be like, I know about you, but I don't know you. And worst case scenario, I pray that it's not, oh, I want to hide from the face of Jesus who can stand in the presence of a holy God. We have the opportunity right now to have that face-to-face encounter with Him and not have any awkwardness. And we can have that real communion with Jesus, even though He is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary right now, interceding on our behalf and doing His final work by faith, through the Holy Spirit, we can have the most intimate communion with Him in our devotional lives. Amen? So that when we see Him face to face, we shall be like Him. The sanctuary structure is a fascinating structure. It had no floor to it. It was a portable structure in that they were able to take it up and put it down, Um, but there was no barrier between the Shekinah glory, the Ark of the Covenant, and the ground. This is significant. The same terra firma, the same ground that the Israelites walked on was the same ground that the Ark of the Covenant and the illimitable eternal God rested. In other words, the sanctuary indicated that heaven had come all the way down. Amen? There was no barrier there was no floor to the sanctuary. Heaven had come all the way down. But the interesting thing was that it was veiled. Are you following me? It was veiled. And the, the structure of the sanctuary was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, 75 feet wide. And the, the sanctuary, the, 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 um, the fence, if you can call it that, or the outer court... was was not an iron-gated fence. It was veiled. It was a linen cloth that covered the sanctuary. It's interesting because in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that the veil is His flesh. The entire sanctuary structure represented Jesus Christ in the Incarnation. Of Jesus. Some people say, oh, we don't need the sanctuary anymore because we have Jesus Christ. They put up this false dichotomy, whether it's Jesus or the sanctuary. Actually, it's Jesus in the sanctuary. It's not either or. It's both and. The the entire sanctuary represents Jesus Christ. In other words, heaven came all the way down in the form of Jesus Christ, but His divinity was veiled inhumanity. We're talking about divine accommodation. Adam and Eve were not able to have a face-to-face encounter with God, and so God accommodates. He comes down. But the Shekinah glory of God was packaged in humanity. It was veiled. The sanctuary came all the way down, and the courtyard was surrounded by a linen fence According to Exodus chapter 25, 27, verse 9 through 12, there was only one way into the sanctuary, and the way in was through veils. There were actually three veils into the sanctuary. There was a veil to the courtyard, according to Exodus chapter 38, verse 8. There was a veil to the holy place, according to Exodus chapter 26, verse 37, And there was a veil to the most holy place, according to Exodus chapter 26, verse 31 and 27, verse 21. There was only one way in, friends. Amen? And it was not gated. It was not padlocked. There was not a combination code. And there was not an entrance fee. Praise the Lord. It was free. Amen? And, but there was a veil over each one of these. It wasn't gated. There wasn't a guard there. It was veiled. And the veil implied an invitation to enter, but to enter with reverence and awe. The sanctuary gives the picture of please come in, but enter with reverence and awe. The sanctuary is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, as we indicated, and we see it in here in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And notice the same idea, the same motif emerges in John chapter 1 and verse 14, and the Word was made flesh, and notice the language. What are the next two words here? And what? And dwelt among us this is sanctuary language, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Sanctuary uh, terminology again. In other words, the, the glory that they were not able to see prior to sin, Jesus, or after sin, Jesus, in the embodiment of the incarnation, veiled His Shekinah glory in humanity to dwell among His people, and He says, and we beheld his glory. The sanctuary is all about Jesus. The entire sanctuary structure points to the incarnation of Jesus. No floor, heaven came all the way down, but there was a linen cloth around it. It was veiled, and Paul says, the veil is his flesh. Notice what the Desire of Ages says in page 23. In these words is announced, the fulfillment of the purpose that had been hidden from eternal ages. Christ was about to visit our world and become incarnate. A body thou hast prepared for me. Had he appeared with the glory that was his before the Father, before the world was, we could not have endured the light of his presence, that we might behold it and not be destroyed." the manifestation of His glory, and listen to this, was shrouded. Praise the Lord for the spirit of prophecy, by the way. Amen? His divinity was veiled with humanity, the invisible glory in the visible human form. So, when the sanctuary was built, it illustrated the incarnation of Jesus. And when Jesus came, He was the sanctuary. Divinity veiled in humanity that we might behold His glory. The other thing that the sanctuary points to is that the sanctuary reveals the plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. The plan of salvation is made possible through Jesus And there was only one entrance into the sanctuary. There were not five entrances. We live in this day of postmodernity where people say that Jesus is a way, a truth, and a life, but Jesus' claim is exclusivity. There is only one way in. Jesus, I am the way, and this is not a… proposition that supports pluralism. It's exclusivity. Jesus says, I am the way, and Jesus is our access point. Moving very quickly here, the door of the sanctuary. Jesus is our access. John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If Jesus did not come to this earth, there would be no salvation. We come into the sanctuary through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the door, and we look at this bird's-eye view of the sanctuary. We come into the sanctuary, and the first article of furniture that we come to is the altar of burnt offering. I'm so glad that this is not the last article of furniture. It's the first one. In other words, you come to the altar, and you accept Jesus as your personal Savior the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it is at this first article of furniture that you accept Jesus and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? I mean, do you believe that? You come in, you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, when you look at the trajectory of the sanctuary, it's not about how far you get it's about being in the process. The thief on the cross only made it to the first article of furniture. Will he be in the kingdom? Amen. So, he only made it to the first article of furniture. He accepted Jesus as his Savior. Now, if he would have been alive enough, he would have been baptized and continued to grow in the process of sanctification, but he only made it in the door. Amen. Amen. He made it in the door, he accepted Jesus, and Jesus said, look, your name is written in Lamb's book of life, you will be in paradise. And many times we have this false idea that, look, this article of furniture is the last one. I have to go through all this rigor and, and, and requirements in order to have Jesus as my Savior, But it is the first article of furniture. You accept Jesus as your Savior. You have the assurance of eternal life. And Jesus says, look, now walk with me. And as long as you are alive, you will be growing in Christ. And Jesus becomes Savior and Lord. Important. Savior and Lord of your life. But it is the ground from which this assurance of salvation, the rest of the sanctuary experience, is grounded in the reality that you are saved because of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? Now, let me give you a tip. If there's any gospel that's presented out there, there are many gospels, even in the Seventh-day Adventist church. There is so much confusion in something that is so foundational and so elementary as salvation. And here is the tip. If you come across any gospel, and it may sound good, no matter how good it sounds, no matter how logical it may seem, you take it to the litmus test of the sanctuary. You lay it over the sanctuary, and if it does not fit into the sanctuary or contradicts the sanctuary, I'm sorry, friends, it is a false gospel. It is a false gospel. It is not a biblical gospel. We need to take everything to the litmus test of the sanctuary, and if it contradicts the sanctuary, it is a false gospel. The Jews had a false gospel, and if they had used the sanctuary hermeneutic, the sanctuary reference point, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and just understood that the sanctuary was the reference point for understanding the work of Christ, they would not have misunderstood and ultimately rejected the Messiah. They were not using the sanctuary as their reference point. Did they believe in the sanctuary? Absolutely. Would they die for the sanctuary? Absolutely. The issue was they were not using the sanctuary as their framework, as their key for understanding the work of Christ. If you come across any gospel that contradicts the sanctuary, it is a false gospel. Moving very quickly here. The altar of sacrifice, the first article of current furniture that you come to. The altar of sacrifice, Jesus as our Savior. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We accept Jesus as our Savior. We have the assurance of eternal life. And Jesus says, I want to have you walk with me. I want to have you grow with me. Then we come to the next article of furniture, to the laver. This was the place where the priests would wash their hands and their feet. The laver represents Jesus as our cleanser. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you were to find a baby on campus that was dirty and naked, and you could see no adult or parents around, most likely the first thing that you would do to that baby, especially if it's cold outside, dirty and naked baby, the first thing you would do is cover the baby. Then if you could still not find the parents, what is the second thing you would do? you would give the baby a bath. Notice what the, the, the order of this, covering and cleansing. You find a baby naked on campus, dirty, cover and cleanse. The Bible says that we are spiritually naked. The first thing that God does is cover us with His robe of righteousness. Amen. And you are declared righteous. Praise the Lord for that. Righteousness by faith. He covers you with His robe and then He says, look, it's time for some cleansing. You're covered and you're cleansed. And you can see that specific order in the sanctuary. The first article of furniture, you're covered by the robe of righteousness. Then you're cleansed at the labor. Jesus is our cleanser. The next article of furniture that we come to, now when you look at the sanctuary, the next three... Um, It's not clear which one comes first. The first two, there is a clear, explicit, or implicit order. You come to the altar of sacrifice first, then you come to the cleanser. The next three, it's not clear. The implication here is that these three are to continue to occur simultaneously. They are a triad. The first article of French I want to cover is the table of showbread. Jesus is our sustainer. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We had a two-year-old in in Anchorage. Um, We were married for a number of years, and we weren't planning on having children. Uh, We were going to uh, adopt or foster, and surprise, surprise, uh, (laughs) baby arrives, and praise the Lord, we wouldn't trade him for the world. And so much of the focus was on the birth, rightfully so. We took birthing classes, all the breathing exercises. Uh, We even had an app for uh, every time the contraction would begin and end, and and then it would have all these algorithms and these graphs showing you the length of the… Anyway, it just got crazy. And then after what seemed like an eternal time period, the baby arrived. Praise God! I still remember when my son took his first breath, <gasps> and we were just rejoicing. I put his first diaper on, we're just there, and then over our sleep-deprived consciousness <laughs> came the realization that this baby needed to be fed continually. I remember when the nurse told me, uh, you know, you have to feed Him every two hours, right? And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, like every two hours, like 24 hours? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, wow, They didn't. I don't remember reading that. And so, so I want you to, to look at this. There's one thing about being born, praise the Lord for that, because without birth, there is no life. It's one thing to be born, and if you're not born, there is no life. So being born is essential. But after birth, you need to stay alive after you become alive. Now follow me. In the courtyard, you become alive. Praise God. You are born again. But you need to stay alive after you become alive. If there is no growth, there is death. Every time we go to the doctor, is he growing? Is he eating? Because if he stays the same seven pounds, six ounces that he was at birth, something is wrong. And I want to tell you, friends, there are many Christians that are still in diapers for 30 years. Come on now. They're in the NICU. They've never learned to walk. They're still on milk. They've never transitioned out of the courtyard. So, the holy place experience is thriving after you become alive, and we need to feed on the Word. We need to eat. Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. They thought He was talking about cannibalism. Jesus says, look, my words I speak unto you. They are spirit. They are life. They are Christians that have been born again that have never eaten again. We need to eat the Word of God. The lampstand represents Jesus as our light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, representing the Holy Spirit, whose the, the priest's role was to every day fill the lamps with the oil which represented the Holy Spirit. This is talking about our witness. Jesus is our light moving quickly here, to the altar of incense. Jesus is our righteousness. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 8, 8 verse 3, Psalms 141 verse 2 reveal the mingling of this incense with the prayers of the saints, and when we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 14 verse 13. In other words, there is a temptation… That the longer that we're thriving and growing in Jesus Christ, that we come to the place that we say, you know what, the righteousness that Christ gave me is now my righteousness. In other words, I can take credit for this. I've been a Christian a long time, Sabbath school teacher, head elder. I've been doing all these wonderful works in the name of Jesus, and I can come to the place where I say, Lord, look at me and what I have done, but this article of furniture, which is the mingling of the prayers of God's people with the righteousness of Christ, indicates that every time we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus. In other words, we never come to the Father in our own name. amen? Amen. By implication, in our own righteousness. No matter how long we've been a Christian, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And every prayer that we breathe, we end in the name of Jesus, in the righteousness of Christ. And the only reason why they are acceptable to God is because our prayers are mingled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is our privilege, according to Review and Herald Ellen White, June 18, 1896, it is our privilege and duty to bring the efficacy of the name of Christ into our petitions and use the very arguments that Christ used in our behalf. Our prayers will then be in complete harmony with the will of God. Then it is, "...that Christ clothes the contrite suppliant with His own priestly vestments, and the human petitioner approaches the altar, holding the holy censer from which ascends the incense of the fragrance of the merits of Christ's righteousness." The sanctuary is all about righteousness by faith, and here we see it It, at the, the altar of incense, that every time we pray, we pray in the righteousness of Christ. It's in the merits of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian. We always need the righteousness of Christ. And every prayer we breathe is a reminder of that reality. The sanctuary reveals the roles of Jesus The sanctuary is all about Jesus, friends. Jesus fulfilled the role as the lamb. John chapter 1 verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the introduction of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist. And in the Old Testament tabernacle, they were to bring a lamb into the sanctuary. They were to confess over the Lamb their sins, and with their own hand, they were to slice the animal's throat from ear to ear. I'm so glad that we don't have to do this today. Now, something fascinating happened at that point. There would be a priest that would catch the blood, and then the priest would do one of two things. He would take the the blood into the sanctuary, and with the priest's finger, he would place the blood on the horns of the altar in the sanctuary, or sprinkle it before the veil. So, you can see the movement of sin. Sin goes from the person to the the lamb, to the blood, to the sanctuary. Here, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the antitype that has met the type. Now, it's interesting because you did not bring your, your own blood... From the lamb into the sanctuary. You were dependent on the priest to minister the sacrifice, the blood on your behalf. This is an essential role. Many Christians celebrate the role of Jesus as the lamb, and we should. But there is a twofold role of Jesus in the plan of salvation. Number one, it's the lamb. And number two, it is the high priest. Both were necessary in the transference of sin from the person to the lamb, to the blood, to the sanctuary. The, the priest was necessary to make that transference possible. No priest, no salvation. No lamb, no salvation. Both were essential for the plan of salvation to take place. The lamb and the priest. Jesus fulfilled the Lamb. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says that after Jesus went to heaven, after fulfilling the role as the Lamb, took on another role, another responsibility. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, who serve in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. This is a New Testament principle, the idea that Jesus right now is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Do you believe that, friends? This is what makes us Uniquely, Seventh-day Adventists. I want to tell you that our evangelical friends are stuck in the courtyard. They accept Jesus as the Lamb of God, and they believe that that is the end. The unique contribution of Seventh-day Adventists or Seventh-day Adventism is this idea that Paul illustrates that Jesus went on after becoming the Lamb to become our high priest to minister in the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf. 8031 to 1844, high priest in the holy place. 1844 to this present day, high priest in the most holy place. You approach any Christian today and you ask them the question, what did Jesus do at the la- as the Lamb on the cross, and they would be able to give you an intelligible answer as to what Jesus did at the cross. If you were to ask them, what is Jesus doing right now in heaven on our behalf, 99% of Christians today would not be able to give you a biblical answer for what Jesus is doing. That is because, friends, Our evangelical friends and Protestantism as a whole has rejected the sanctuary as a model, as a reference point after the cross. They believe that it is irrelevant and the wonderful contribution, the biblical contribution that Seventh-day Adventists have made to the world is this idea that Jesus is ministering on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary in the most holy place since 1844. Amen? Do you believe that, friends? It's biblical. Now, I had the privilege of being born in this country. My parents came to this country late 1960s, early 70s. I was born at Washington Adventist Hospital. American citizen. Praise God for that. Love this country and the opportunities that it has given me. Uh, By the way, it's a unique thing uh, being an Asian American because it seems like you're the eternal immigrant. Uh, People ask me, where are you from? And I say, I was born in Tacoma Park, Maryland. They say, no, where are you really from? And I'm like, ooh, okay. (laughs) So, my parents are… or from Korea, they say, "Oh, I like rice and kimchi." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> Anyways, um, unique experience being an Asian American, and I never had the opportunity to go to Asia before. Never had the opportunity to go to Korea before. And 2012, I had a call to go to Japan. My first time to Asia. We landed in Tokyo, I had a speaking appointment there, and afterwards, I uh, took some vacation time, took a bullet train from Tokyo to South Japan, uh, went to Kyoto, and did some sightseeing there. By the way, if you've ever been to Japan, it's a, it's a marvelous thing. The, the trains run by the second on time, and they're, if they're over eight seconds off, they apologize to everybody. These bullet trains go over 120 miles an hour. It's just a thing of marvel. So we were excited. My first time in Asia and got on a bullet train from Tokyo to Kyoto. We landed in Kyoto, got off the train station and took our bags, put them in the hotel, and we're going to do some sightseeing. We got into the train station, and the train station in Kyoto is, is mammoth. It's huge in escalators that went up like seven stories. Never seen anything like that before in my life. And, and we got lost in Kyoto at the train station for three hours. You ever been with your spouse and lost and you're hungry, which becomes hangry? You ever been hangry before? So, we're getting irritable and angry, and contrary to popular opinion, Korean is not Japanese. And so, uh, you know, you couldn't speak the language. Every time I tried to speak English to someone, they would go like this, And, uh, and we were lost. And by the time you start seeing the same landmarks over and over, going in circles and we can't speak the language, we're getting upset, we're angry, and our vacation turned from a delight to a, to a nightmare, to an absolute nightmare, until we found something that changed our entire experience. We found a map
1: in English,
0: praise the Lord. Now, think about what a map is. It's a piece of paper, huh, right? A piece of paper that it's a lens, it's a framework. And the first thing that you want to discover is where am I? Very important. You you ever get lost at the mall and you go to a map and it says, and I look for it, you are here. Oh, praise God. And everything from that framework, you are here, becomes a reference point that unlocks. It becomes a hermeneutical lens, glasses that unlock the mystery of where you are. And using that map, that piece of paper, that lens, it unlocked Kyoto and changed our experience from a nightmare to a delight. We navigated and mastered that entire city, went on the buses, went all over the place using that piece of paper. And by the end, we, we you know, joked with each other. We said, we can become a tour guide for Kyoto. <laughs> and friends, God has given us the map. Amen? It's the sanctuary. We ought to use it. And friends, you can't use a map of Paris to understand Kyoto. And there is an identity crisis in Adventism today. No surprise to us, we are living in the last final moments of earth's history. There's an identity crisis within the church today, and there is a foot race to redefine Adventism as we know it. And people are promoting different maps. They're saying, don't use the sanctuary framework anymore. It's archaic. We need to move beyond. We need to use a different key, a different map, a different reference point, and replace it with something else. And the reason why there is so much confusion in the church today as something so foundational and so fundamental as the gospel is because we are using different maps to understand the work of Christ and the work of salvation. And I pray that as a result of this series, this week, that all of us will recommit ourselves to using the map that God has given us as a people, this is not the time to be discarding the sanctuary and replacing it with something else. Because if we get rid of the sanctuary, we change Adventist identity. And it is Adventist identity that drives Adventist mission. And God is calling us as a people to go back to the Bible and back to the sanctuary in a time when the Protestant leaders are going back to Rome. God is calling us back to the Bible. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the map that you've given us Of the sanctuary. Lord, You have called us back to the Bible, back to the spirit of prophecy, back to the sanctuary. Lord, help us to recommit ourselves to using the framework and the key and the reference point that You have called us to. Help us not to forsake the pillars upon which our pioneers have founded this great movement. Lord, in the midst of this identity crisis that we are experiencing, help us to ground ourselves in the rock of Jesus Christ and his word. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons,